Good morning. I am your host, Claudia Shambaugh, with laser-like focus on my ballot, my checks and balances, Lafayette Park picnics, our health care, and the planet's continued heat waves, welcoming you to the July 17, 20 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, UCI Law School professor Rick Hassan will weigh in with the U.S. Supreme Court nomination process underway. He'll talk about the D.C. District Court Judge Brett Kavanaugh's record, as well as how this last Supreme Court session bodes for voting rights and election law. But I think I'm going to have to change all of what we had planned because of some of the recent blogs that he's posted just this morning. My second guest today will be Jack Cheevers of the Western States Medicare Medicaid Services, all in the name of protection are their new improved cards and new advisories against scammers. Let's protect all our seniors. We'll be right back after a very short station break. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Returning to Ask a Leader is my first guest, UCI Law School professor Rick Hassan, fresh from last week's eighth annual Supreme Court term and review on UCI's campus, leaving the crowd sufficiently unnerved. Rick is a nationally recognized expert in election law and campaign finance regulation. His notoriety of the finest kind, it spreads throughout the land with his other callings, election law blogger, fiendish tweeter, and the author of The Voting Wars, The Justice of Contradictions, Antonin Scalia, and the Politics of Disruption, Plutocrats United, and The Supreme Court and Election Law. Rick Hassan has appeared on all media outlets. I'm not going to name them all, but you know what I mean when I say all of them. And I appreciate him making the time, which might still be his vacation before classes begin this late summer. He comes to us from his blogging bunker in Los Angeles. Welcome to Back to Ask a Leader, Rick Hassan. Good to be with you again. Well, with the seriously crowded news days, yesterday's in Helsinki's no exception, it's really challenging to keep the public informed about the developments underway post-session and during the Supreme Court nomination proceedings. Don't you, don't you find that just overwhelming? Like, is this like, unlike any other time in your career? Yeah, I would say since the campaign of uh, 2016, it's been really nonstop and uh, it's hard to keep up with all of the developments in the news, much less be able to analyze them and put them in any perspective. So I just do the best that I can, as I think we're all doing right now. Well, you're, you're the top of the line, I must say. Well, so your dour prediction a year ago was that there would be two vacancies that would open up on the Supreme Court. The Kennedy retirement was one that you were intimating, or pre- I think you did name me by name, but who, who might be the other one? Well, you know, I... Th- the thinking has been that uh, Justice Thomas would be uh, ready to retire. Justice Thomas's wife is quite active in uh, conservative politics, uh, very closely aligned with Donald Trump. We just had the justice celebrate uh, a birthday. I believe he turned 70. And uh, while that's young by Supreme Court standards to retire, uh, it would give the president potentially a chance to nominate 
another justice who could serve on the court for a generation. Remember, Thomas came on the court when he was 43. Uh, I don't know that it will happen. I certainly don't think it will happen if the Senate changes hands uh, to Democratic control, uh, where I expect the Democrats would likely block a nomination uh, that would replace Justice Thomas. But if Republicans keep control of the Senate after the November elections, then I certainly think that's possible. And of course, uh, you have two uh, justices who were appointed by President Clinton, uh, Justice Stephen Breyer and Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Both of them are older. Uh, Justice Ginsburg is 86. I believe that Justice uh, Breyer is turning 80 later this year. Uh, And so... Uh, just speaking in terms of their ability to stay on the court, you know, we don't know what their health situation is going to be, but when you get to that age, there's certainly a greater risk that you have to leave the court involuntarily. So uh, I, you know, I, I, I think if Republicans keep control, uh, certainly possible that there'll be a voluntary retirement, and even if not, within the next few years, there could still be someone else who leaves the court. So... I know that there's a lot of nomination proceedings to talk about and the Kavanaugh record, but there's so much news right now and the Supreme Court session dealing with voters' rights and election law. I'm, I'm sort of I'm at sort of the conundrum here of how to get it all in. I, I guess what I'd like to do is look at some of the redistricting issues that the Supreme, you said the Supreme Court ducked the issue with, as you called him, uh, Justice Kennedy, Justice Hamlet now leaving the court, um, how the North Carolina, Maryland, and Wisconsin cases will be settled. It's back on, as you intimate, on Justice Roberts, his court, so to speak. The careful work that Justice Kagan wrote in her concurring opinion is not a matter for for further consideration then, Rick? So just to put this in perspective, uh, the question uh, that has been before the court now a number of times is whether in drawing district lines, either for Congress or for legislative districts, uh, whether or not uh, a political group like a state legislature that might draw those lines can go too far in favoring one party over the other. Uh, That's called a partisan gerrymandering claim. Right. The the court's been dealing with this since the 1980s. Uh, The most important case uh, uh, right now is a 2004 case called the Veith case out of Pennsylvania. In that case, the court divided into three groups. Four justices, led by Justice Scalia, thought that these are uh, the kinds of cases that federal courts are not competent to hear, that they present uh, unmanageable uh, standards. The courts don't know how to separate permissible from impermissible consideration of party when drawing district lines. And uh, therefore, courts are closed to these claims. There were four other justices on the court, uh, the four liberal justices on the court who had a variety of ways of trying to police this. When does it go too far? When your intent is bad? When the effect helps one party too much than another, etc. And Justice Kennedy stood in the middle. He agreed with the liberal justices that the court was open for business to hear these claims, but he agreed with the conservative justice, Justice uh, Scalia, that there was no standard so far that anyone had come up with to try to separate permissible from impermissible consideration of party and districting. And so this issue has been percolating for the last 14 years since that Veith case. And this year we were really poised to have a determination by the court of the um, whether Wisconsin. or not Justice Kennedy was going to make his decision. 
And uh, there was a case out of Wisconsin called Gill versus Whitford, which came up with a new standard. Uh, it wasn't uh, all that new, but it was new enough that if Justice Kennedy was ready to take the plunge, he could. And in the end, uh, when we were expecting a big decision, the case was argued in October, and then we got to June, and they, the court still had not reached a decision. They used a technical standing determination to duck the case and send it back to the lower court for further determinations. And Justice Kennedy didn't make a decision. And we now know that Justice Kennedy has decided to leave this to his successor. Now, if his successor votes the way I expect uh, he or she will vote, probably he, uh, Judge Kavanaugh, will likely be confirmed, then I think there will probably be five justices who will embrace the opinion that Scalia came up with in 2004 that the federal courts are closed for these kinds of cases. So uh, what that means is that, just to make this very concrete, uh, in the state of North Carolina, uh, they had to engage in a new redistricting plan for their for Congress a couple of years ago because their last plan was struck down on different grounds. Right. It's a 50-50 state, and there's 13 congressional districts, and they drew 10 of the 13 districts to be safe Republican districts. And when the legislative leader was asked, why he drew 10 of 13 districts this way in a 50-50 state, he said, because I couldn't figure out how to draw an 11th Republican district. And so I think that's what we're going to see if the court decides not to get involved here, maximum partisan advantage being used in drawing these district lines. And so, and you were saying in your, your writing for the last week's forum in review of the Supreme Court session of this last year, that Justice Roberts was going to be doing sort of a careful transitioning. So first, uh, that there would be, um, he would weigh in very carefully so that eventually it's all sort of incrementally handled. And we, we look up and there's there will be no Supreme Court weighing in about the, ab the absolutely blatantly partisan aspect of all these district uh, maps. Well, so if we assume that uh Judge Kavanaugh is confirmed to the court, and he's a very conservative judge. Uh, if he becomes the ninth justice, then that would place Chief Justice Roberts in the position that Justice Kennedy was in, which is as the um, justice in the middle. I don't know I'd call him the swing justice, because I think he's likely to move on the conservative side almost always. Uh, uh, but that puts him in the middle, and uh, we've seen that Justice uh, Roberts' general approach in part because he's also the chief justice and cares about the institutional legitimacy of the court, is that he tends to move slowly and incrementally rather than boldly. Now, sometimes he'll move boldly. He did sign on to the opinion, for example, the affordable that's, going to, that's going to hurt public sector unions. Right, uh, yeah, that one. This, uh, this is the Janus case that was decided right. last month. Uh, but he's usually, uh, as, as in the Janus case, there was first a warning in an earlier case that this was coming when he voted and wrote the opinion striking down a key part of the Voting Rights Act in 2013. And that was presaged in 2009 by an opinion suggesting this was coming. So he tends right. to kind of move slowly, but I do think that he's going to eventually move in that direction. And when it comes to gerrymandering, for us in California, one of the most interesting questions is whether or not the court will revisit an issue that the court decided in 2015 over whether or not uh, the people in states with the initiative process can rein in gerrymandering through the use of 
uh, voter initiatives. So in California, we passed an initiative which took the uh, power to draw district lines away from the state legislature. Uh, that was all done in Arizona, and the Arizona legislature filed a lawsuit, which made it to the Supreme Court in 2015, where the claim was that the Constitution only gives the state legislature, rather than the voters acting through the initiative process, the power to draw, uh, uh, the power to come up with plans for how to redistrict congressional districts. Supreme Court on a five to four vote said, no, voters can do this through the initiative process. But there were four dissenters. The dissenters were led by Chief Justice Roberts, yeah. uh, who said that only the legislature has the power to do this under the Constitution. And so it is possible that not only will the court say that partisan gerrymandering can't be directly policed by the federal courts, but that the court can come in and say that voters can't even take away the power from state legislatures to draw these congressional districts, that it actually is something that state legislatures have the power to do, which would make things even worse. So we'll have to watch and see how much he's willing to overturn precedent. I think he's got other things on his list, like affirmative action, like abortion, uh, these kinds of issues that he might want to spend his political capital on rather than this question I just raised about um, initiatives and redistricting. But we'll have to wait and see how things go. So the Michigan Supreme Court deciding on whether the statewide proposition voters, not politicians, should go on the November ballot, that that issue could be eventually heard on the U.S. Supreme Court level. And that, and that you can project what could happen in, with the composition at that time. Right. Yes. Now, the question before in Michigan, so uh, what's happening in Michigan now is there is a voter initiative that's qualified for the ballot, which would take away the power from the state legislature to redistrict. It's before the Michigan Supreme Court. But the issue there is whether or not this is something that is permissible to go on the ballot right. as an initiative. So it's a somewhat different legal question. But if the Michigan Supreme Court says, oh, yeah, this can go on the ballot, and if it passes, at that point, that could be a case that could make its way up to the Supreme Court, where there could potentially be a reversal of that Arizona decision from 2015. Uh, but it may not make it that far. One of the things we know about the Michigan Supreme Court is that there are elected judges, and the, uh, the judges on that court are majority Republican, and the Republican Party is very opposed to this redistricting measure, as is the Chamber of Commerce, which is backing some of the members of the state Supreme Court. So we'll see uh, how they decide this question of whether or not Michigan voters even get to vote on this on the ballot. Well, we'll just rely on your blog to keep us posted, because state news does not travel very well to other states. I, you know, uh, yeah, it's true. It, it doesn't, doesn't travel well within states sometimes. Yeah, no kidding. Well, then along with this redistricting, there's the campaign finance restriction and disclosure requirements. And you just this morning are putting us all on notice that the Department of Treasury is pulling disclosure requirements off. You're talking about how the the NRA, the Koch Brothers, Americans for Prosperity, and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce that are huge donors that the state, uh, the Department of Treasury is not going to require disclosure any longer of their so-called charitable organizational involvement. So most organizations that are engaged in political activity do have to publicly disclose their donors. So if you're a candidate campaign or you're a political party or you're a political action committee or a super PAC, your donors are disclosed and that information is publicly available on the FEC's website. Uh, there are other groups, however, that have really emerged in the last decade or, or uh, last eight years 
These are groups that are organized under Section 501c4 of the Internal Revenue Code as social welfare organizations, but these groups have been allowed to engage in politics without publicly disclosing their donors. Uh, so these are groups like, um, uh, uh, as you mentioned, a, a wing of the National Rifle Association that uh, engages in political activities. Now, they don't have to publicly disclose their donors, but they do have to disclose the donors in a report that's filed with the Internal uh, Revenue uh, Service. What happened to, uh, yesterday is that the Treasury Department announced that they will no longer have to disclose their donors to the Treasury Department. Now, 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 why does that matter if the public doesn't see it anyway? Well, the public doesn't see it, but that information is available to law enforcement officials, uh -huh. not only in the federal government, but in state government. So, for example, if we're worried about foreign money coming into uh, the National Rifle Association, which has been a uh, problem that's been flagged uh, in this last election, and there's an ongoing investigation into that question of whether foreign money came in. Uh, it's the kind of thing that it would be much easier to track that if the uh, group had to report to the government who their donors were. Uh, and uh, we know in California, for example, California has sought access to that information, and New York as well has sought access to that information. They've said, if you're going to be uh, raising money in our state, you've got to file that same form that you filed with the uh, federal government. Uh, you've got to file that with the state government, not for public disclosure, but for investigative purposes. And so if this information is no longer required on the federal side, we don't know if states are going to be able to still be able to get it. And... Uh, that makes it harder to ensure that foreign money is not coming into our elections through this kind of backdoor. So then there's the all this First Amendment issue about free speech, unlimited funding of political campaigns and all that. And now and as you bring up the potential for foreign involvement in our political processes here, our electoral processes. So how how close are we getting to free speech being somehow availed to foreign parties that have intermediaries that look like they're actually American protected L, um, sort of entities? How where are we going here, Rick? Yeah, well, Sound I think the there, are two, there are two questions. Right, one is whether or not it's going to be possible to police the flow of foreign money into our elections. And the decision by the Treasury Department to not allow that money to come in is quite worrisome. Uh, but there's another issue as well, and uh, this will be a nice segue to the question of the next Supreme Court justice. Correct. Oh, thank you for um, doing my job. So there's a, uh, a decision that Judge Kavanaugh, the uh, Trump nominee right. for uh, the Kennedy seat, decision that Judge Kavanaugh wrote a, a few years back called Blumen versus Federal Election Commission which involved the long-standing ban on foreign contributions and spending in American elections. And uh, in an opinion for three judges written by uh, Judge Kavanaugh, he said that the ban on foreign money coming into elections uh, is constitutional. And the Supreme Court agreed with that decision without any hearing. They just affirmed what uh, Kavanaugh wrote. And all of that sounds fine and good Except. until you dig down into the details. And the detail, the important detail is this, that Judge Kavanaugh is, in his opinion, uh, left open a gaping hole in the ban on foreign spending, which basically says that uh, while it may be permissible for the government to ban an individual from spending money on ads that directly call for the election or defeat of a candidate, you know, vote for Clinton, vote for Trump, something like that. 
an ad that did anything short of explicitly calling for the election or defeat of a candidate potentially could be paid for by foreign money and would be protected by the First Amendment. And so, for example, we know in the last election, there were a number of ads and placements on social media by agents of the Russian government, for example, claiming that Hillary is a Satan was one of the things that uh, one of the ads that we learned about from the Mueller investigation, uh, ads that were disparaging of Clinton, ads that were supporting Jill Stein or Trump or uh, doing whatever they were trying to do to influence the election, but avoiding the exp- words of express advocacy, the vote for, the vote against, etc. And uh, Kavanaugh's opinion in the Blumen case suggests that the First Amendment protects the rights of foreign individuals and entities and maybe even foreign governments to be able to engage in this activity. That's very worrying, and it suggests that a foreign spending ban might become quite ineffective if it's legal to do everything short of saying vote for or vote against a candidate. And so I expect that uh, you know, on this issue, the court could well decide that a lot of foreign money could come into elections. Uh, in addition, just speaking more generally, uh, and to your question, many points, I, expe- yeah. I expect that Kavanaugh is going to be on the very strong side of using the First Amendment to allow for a uh, conservative libertarian view to prevail. And so what that means is not only uh, decisions like the campaign finance decision I just mentioned, but also involving union spending, uh, also involving potentially allowing for discrimination against uh, people in the LGBT community, based on a free speech right uh, and, and uh, you know, other First Amendment protections. And so I think we're likely to see, uh, as we saw with Justice Scalia, use of the First Amendment to further conservative and libertarian aims. And, and that seems to be where Judge Kavanaugh is going to go. For those of you who've just joined me here, my guest is UCI Law School Professor Rick Hassan, a nationally recognized expert in election law and campaign finance regulation, setting aside the drama so he can be on this show today with us. I just wanted to quickly figure out the um, when you talked about how Kavanaugh would rule in the union cases, the libertarian view would be to say that it that the speech of the non-union member would be protected by not requiring them to pay any any kind of dues at all, and it would would be totally un although they benefit from negotiations a bargaining from the union that they're not required to con- contribute a single thing to the union right now it's already been the case right. for a long time that uh, that non-union members who don't want any any portion of their dues going towards political activities don't have to pay they can be exempt from that that's not new the supreme court said that before but the supreme court in the past has said that uh, states can still require that people who uh, are, are benefit from unions, because they're uh, they're in a um, a business that is nego- uh, where the union is negotiating workers' wages and benefits, that they have to pay their fair share. Otherwise, they can free ride. Right. They get the benefit of the union uh, doing this negotiation, but they don't pay any of the costs. And what the Supreme Court said in the Janus case is, well. That violates the First Amendment rights to pay these uh, these dues for as to public sector unions, and that was a First Amendment determination. There are two more shoes that c- could well drop, drop here. Okay. First is that the opinion by Justice Alito hinted, and we've already seen some lawsuits filed, that 
people who are who paid these yes. agency fees to unions who are non-union members but pay these agency fees can now sue for a refund. And so there's the potential to even bankrupt some unions by requiring refunds by people who do not want to have this money paid. Uh, the second uh, question is whether or not uh, this might be extended to private unions, private sector unions and not just public sector unions. And so there are all kinds of questions Put it this way, there are all kinds of ways in which things can continue to get much worse and are likely to get much worse, uh, from my perspective, than what we've already seen coming from the Supreme Court uh, as it's been constituted with Justice Kennedy. I, I don't even think probably unions even saw that, that coming, that the liability of having to return union dues to non-union members was coming. I, I, that has to be like a, a shock. <laughs> Well, you know, Justice, uh, Justice Alito uh, he you know, that left then? a big opening for that. And the, uh, uh, according to uh, Dean Chemerinsky, when he spoke at the right. annual UCI Supreme Court term review, these cases have already been filed. Uh, there yeah, are some cases yeah. pending. So we'll, well see how this goes. Well, Rick, among others, Paul Schiff Berman from George Washington University Law School made the case a few days right after Kavanaugh's nomination about the Senate confirmation hearings needing to address the aspect of the president having right now the opportunity to pick a judge that would hear a case against the same guy, the very president. And the, the Federalist Society served up Kavanaugh with a published record concerning whether a sitting president could be criminally investigated. You've been aware of his being considered over the last several years. What did you see? What do you think has been going on behind the scenes? What do you expect from here on? In terms of whether or not he's going to be confirmed? Well, whether this this matter of the... Well, the, the whole lack of a check and balance, if Trump can s select, in a sense, his uh, the jurist that would have a significant vote to protect what protect the executive branch from from litigation while the president is a sitting president. So yeah, I think that Democrats are likely to push Kavanaugh on the question of whether he had any conversations with Trump about the investigation and whether or not he's had those conversations, whether or not Kavanaugh would commit to recusing himself from any decisions involving the president and the investigation. Uh, I uh, imagine there have been no conversations. You do. Uh, at least uh, nothing directly. Uh, and uh, I expect that Kavanaugh will not, he will not commit to any recusal on this question. And so then the check and balance there is the conference. The check and balance there is the confirmation process. It's the question whether uh, there's going to be uh, 50 uh, votes, 51 votes, to confirm this nominee. Uh, it's a very thin margin in the Senate right now. There are a handful of Republican senators and Democratic senators who might be at, in play. But at the end of the day, this is such an important vote for the Republican Party. I think it's going to be very hard for any Republicans not to vote yes uh, on this question. Well, I think, like Republican Susan Collins has telegraphed that in a, you know, was saying she, somebody who is hostile to president, but the precedent. Uh, so it's it seems like there she's trying to have it both ways like she's had it with other votes that were really tight so it, it doesn't the margins aren't as close when we look at two of the other senators that uh, democratic senators up for re-election in states that uh, you know overwhelmingly voted for the the president so it's uh, yeah 
Well, but, you know, there's been some recent polling that's been done by some groups opposing the nomination, suggesting that red state senators were red state senators or Democrats would not face uh, a problem voting no. But I think we're going to have to see how things play out over the next few months. You know, it's hard to know what's going to happen in the next week. Things just move so uh, quickly in politics these days. Uh, and so it's hard to uh, exactly know where things are going to go. But, you know, I think we'll see hearings likely. I think we're talking about early September. And uh, at that point, we may know a lot more about the Mueller investigation and there may be more questions to ask this nominee, which he may or may not choose to answer. So it could be just what's the flavor of or the color of the day, what's, uh, what's breaking that could give cover to some Democratic re-election, Senate re-election candidates, that, uh, a chance for them to, you know, use that sort of breaking news moment to, to give them cover to, to vote against that confirmation. It's possible. And also Rand Paul, who's a Republican, uh, has been making noise against Kavanaugh based on uh, concerns about privacy. Could be some negotiations there. Uh, But at the end of the day, barring something uh, significant, I think we're likely to see uh, Judge Kavanaugh joining the Supreme Court either right when the Supreme Court's term starts in October or shortly thereafter. I have to ask, Rick, what remains, if any, any, what remains of backstops in our jurisprudence system, what kind of checks and balances do we have left? The democracy with a little d, what pronouncement do you give us? And as sober as you're allowing us to take it. Well, we still do have the vote in this country, although in some places it's harder to cast that vote. Exactly. The term elections are going to be very important, and we're going to have to see uh, if, for example, Democrats re, uh, retake control of the House and or the Senate. And I expect that they will serve a kind of oversight function, which the uh, Republican uh, House and Republican Senate have mostly not uh, served during the first half of President Trump's first term. Well, um, we didn't get a chance to talk about some of the voter restriction laws as far as the voter ID and that going through um, the the system here. But um, I guess I... I want to leave everybody with a thought and you commenting on it um, about, I I really don't recall who was it that posted this, but projecting in the year 2030-something that 50% of the country's population, given the whole urbanizing trend, 50% of the population will be represented by 16 senators. Well, so I do think this is a problem that the the Senate uh, gives to for each state, regardless of population. Uh, and uh, so it uh, penalizes large states like California. And it's baked into the Constitution. Uh, it, it can't even be subject to a regular constitutional amendment. Uh, and so um, it is uh, increasingly going to be an anti-democratic feature of the U.S. Constitution that the U.S. Senate gives each state Uh, the same number of senators. And uh, that's only going to get worse going forward. Well, on that note, Rick, I want to thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you so very much. My pleasure. Take care. Take care. That was Rick Hassan. He is a UCI law school professor and nationally known for uh, his jurisprudence asked by all media outlets to talk. He's the author of Voting Wars, The Justice of Contradictions, uh, Justice Scalia, it's about, uh, 
Plutocrats United and the Supreme Court and election law. We'll return with Jack Cheevers, Public Information Officer for the Western States, about some Medicare updates for all of us. Don't go away, y'all. You ask them the reason they cry, oh, alas, there's a war on in France, and the cows have no grass. Singing honesty's all out of fashion. These are the rigs of the time, time, me boys. These are the rigs of the time. Welcome back to the show. My next guest is Jack Cheevers. Jack is the public information officer for Region 9 of the U.S. at Medicare and Medicaid Services, and that includes California, Arizona, Hawaii, Nevada, and the Pacific Territories, where he's been since 2005. He completed as a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science at UC Berkeley. He's a 27-year veteran as a newspaper reporter and editor in California, including seven years as a reporter with the Los Angeles Times. He's also the author of a book entitled Act of War, Lyndon Johnson, North Korea, and the Capture of the Spy Ship Pueblo. We could, we could talk about that on another interview someday. Jack is here to talk about the new Medicare cards that are being sent out to all people with Medicare, 60 million people in all. Californians with Medicare started receiving their new cards in this last month, and I know I have a friend who just confirmed this for me yesterday, got his, and the mailing will continue for several more weeks. Jack comes to us, I believe, from San Francisco, correct? That's right, Claudia. Good, good morning. Good morning. So how and why are you pushing out these brand new cards, Jack? Well, the, the big difference between the new Medicare cards and the old cards is that the new cards don't have your Social Security number on it. The Social Security numbers have been removed from the, from the new cards, and that's being done basically to, to protect seniors uh, from identity theft and also to protect the Medicare program itself from uh, thieves who use Medicare uh, benefits illegally. So your new card, your new Medicare card, is going to have a uh, randomly generated number that's unique to you. So tell us then about identity theft. It's been a problem for seniors who are a pretty, pretty vulnerable sort of demographic. Yes, it's, it's, it's been a big problem, and it's actually getting uh, worse. Um, it's something that affects a, a, a large number of people who are, you know, 65 years and older, and it, uh, it's something that can take not only an emotional toll on those who experience it, but it's a, it can take a very bad financial toll as well. Um, uh, two-thirds of all the identity theft victims uh, reported of some sort of financial loss, and it's something that can disrupt your life damage your credit rating, result in inaccuracy in your uh, medical records, and uh, result in costly false claims. And this is a very confounding problem when one considers these are Medicare uh, participants and in declining health, declining cognition. So this, this whole fraud thing is uh, just is unwieldy serious. Right. So we think these new cards are going to be a big win for consumers for all the reasons you just mentioned. Right. Well, so then how are people getting their new Medicaid cards, Medicare cards? Well, the new cards will come in the mail, and you'll get uh, some basic printed instructions on how to use them. And the cards began hitting mailboxes in California in early June, and the mailing, as you mentioned earlier, is going to continue for a while, probably several weeks or perhaps longer. Uh, but don't worry if... Uh, 
your neighbor got a card and you didn't, or even if your spouse got a card and you didn't, uh, they're being mailed in a kind of a staggered pattern, uh, partly to foil uh, identity thieves, uh, and your card is in the mail, you'll just get it at a later date. Oh, that's very elegant, so that it's not all of a blast. Everybody jumps, sort of like jumping on a FedEx box. It just dropped off something in your... Right, exactly. We want to try what? to step one, you know, keep one step ahead of the identity thieves, and, and uh, we're mailing the, the uh, cards out in, in a certain pattern that we hope will achieve that. So do the new cards mean that Medicare's benefits are changing in any way? No, absolutely not. Uh, you don't have to worry at all about your, your benefits changing. Uh, the new cards are just new cards. The benefits will stay the, exactly the same. And when can people start using their new Medicare cards? You can start using it uh, as soon as you get it. But when you do get your new card in the mail, make sure that you uh, dig up your old one and destroy it. Don't just uh, toss it in the, in the trash. Uh, make sure that you destroy it thoroughly. Uh, cut it up into little pieces um, or shred it uh, as if you were dealing with uh, an old expired credit card. Um, and uh, when you have your new card, you can start taking it to your providers. Uh, when you need care, uh, and doctors, pharmacists, and Medicare health plans all know that the new cards are coming. And uh, the providers and, and hospitals and other health care facilities are going to ask you for your new card when you need care. And uh, if you forget your new card, you or your doctor or your other forms of health care providers may, uh, that you will be able to look up the new number online. We have a secure lookup tool that uh, providers will have access to. Well, I'd like you to tell us about these new cards, that they look like, and the material. There's a nice feature to the material. Well, I wish I could show you one, Claudia, uh, but unfortunately oh, you we can't can, do that on the radio. But we can all pull um, but, it up on the web. Uh, great, great. Um, they look, they actually look pretty similar to the old cards. They're uh, red, white, and blue, just like the old cards. And they have your name, they have the, the date when you first became eligible for Medicare. And you'll see also your new Medicare uh, identifier. It's uh, 11 characters long, it's uh, numbers as well as letters. And uh, that is going to be something that's randomly generated and unique to you. And the new cards are made of paper. And the reason for that is basically the new cards are easier for doctors, uh, or paper cards rather, are easier for doctors and other providers to, to scan and copy. And they also save the taxpayers a lot of money. Uh, and uh, with paper, you can, you will, you'll also be able to print out your own replacement card if you need one. So, but that's, how does that work with like a fraudulent party, though, being able to figure out how to get their hands on one and reprint the, the, those cards? Well, they won't have access to your account. Uh, the way you print uh, oh, okay. a new card is uh, you open an account with uh, mymedicare.gov. Uh, we can get into that in a yes, moment. Yes, we do. But, yeah. uh, you'll, you'll get in. You, you, you'll be able to use your own computer at home uh, and get into an account that only you have access to to print the card. So this is assuming all the seniors have that account online? Right. Uh, and we can also, you can call us at 1-800-MEDICARE uh, as well, and we can help you out with that. And if your card is compromised in some way, let's say you're at a restaurant and your purse is stolen with your card in it, uh, we'll issue you a new card with a new number. So I have to ask, as a, a, a perspective, a future consumer, is those Medicare lines that people call, I was given a, a sort of a confidence from a, a seminar I attended recently that they're, a, they're, they're pretty good staff, the, the call board there. So what kind of experience, to say it in the, the private sector parlance, are incoming callers getting from calling those Medicare 
1-800 numbers? Well, we try to give them the best possible experience. Um, they're very well trained. We have a lot of people uh, standing by on the phones, and you can get through uh, 24-7. They're open, uh, I believe, every day of the year. Uh, so uh, whenever you have questions, you can just give us a call uh, at 1-800-MEDICARE. So what if someone calls you or your grandparent or your senior friend? What if they call you on the phone about the new cards? Well, if you get a call on right. the phone, um, it's likely that uh, it's, a, it's a con artist. Con artists and scam artists often try to take advantage of people with Medicare, uh, but you can definitely protect yourself. Make sure that you guard your card, uh, treat your new Medicare number that, like you treat your Social Security number or your credit card numbers. Make sure you only give your new Medicare number to your doctor, your pharmacist, uh, your, insurance company, your insurance company or other people you know and trust. And beware of uh, anybody who contacts you and asks you for your new Medicare number uh, or to pay a fee for your new card. Um, there's absolutely no cost at all for these new cards. Okay. Are there any, Jack, situations in which Medicare does call people at home? Yes, but they're very limited. Uh, for instance, if you call us at 1-800-MEDICARE and you asked a question about, you know, do we cover a certain kind of surgical procedure, for instance, and you left a message for us to call you back with the answer, we would do that. We'll call you back. Uh, and try to help you out. Or if you're a member of a uh, Medicare Advantage plan, which is a, man- a form of managed care, a lot of people in Southern California mm-hmm. belong to such plans. Right. Uh, the, the representatives of those plans are authorized to call you at home because you're one of their customers. Uh, but in you know, other than those situations, be wary of anybody who calls you on the phone and asks for personal information. Uh, don't give don't give out your Medicare number. Uh, or any private information unless you know uh, absolutely uh, who you're dealing with. If, if somebody calls you up out of the blue and asks you for personal information, asks you for money, uh, if they threaten to, to cancel your health benefits, if you don't give them uh, your personal information, just hang up on them. And then call us at 1-800-MEDICARE because we, we are trying to, to, to see where the patterns are, where okay. the hot spots of these scams are around the country. And it helps us to understand that if we, if we get reports, even though you don't know the name of the person who called you or their phone number, we can still plot that out geographically oh, and figure good. out uh, areas where we might want to do, uh, where we should be doing more uh, consumer outreach and, and warning people about that. So to make it really easy for people to report that, that's pretty clear, the pathway on the 1-800-MEDICARE call line, where, how to get right to that, that fraud reporting so that uh, it's, it's easily handed off and people follow through because it sounds like it's a real important data point that you're trying to keep track of. Yeah, it's, uh, you, you'll, get a, you know, you'll get a live operator. It's 1-800-MEDICARE. And let me give your listeners that in numbers. It's 1-800-633-4226. And I'll repeat it. It's 1-800-MEDICARE or 1-800-633-4227. For those of you who just joined, my guest here on Ask a Leader is Jack Cheevers, the Public Information Officer for Region 9 of the U.S. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Region 9 is based in San Francisco. It includes California, Arizona, Hawaii, Nevada, and the Pacific Territories. We're talking about the newly minted Medicare card and some of the scam themes that we should be concerned about. So what kind of fraud's been taking place in California, Jack? Ah! 
Well, unfortunately, um, they are underway. I've personally heard of several different types of of frauds that are underway in California. Let me um, describe a couple of them for for your listeners uh, so they can be prepared if you get a call like this. Um, One of the methods is that uh, you'll get a call uh, from somebody who'll say, you've heard about these new cards, oh yes, uh, well you realize you have to have a temporary card in the meantime, and uh, you in order to get your temporary card, you have to pay me anywhere from five to fifty dollars. That's absolutely not true. Uh, The new cards are free uh, for people with Medicare. Uh, Another scam is people getting a call and being told, well you need to give us uh, the number from your old Medicare card in, in order for us to issue you a new Medicare oh card. Goodness. Again, absolutely not true. We are obviously already have your, your, your current Medicare number. We don't need it. Uh, so the new cards are going to come in the mail, and you don't have to give any information over the phone in order to get one. And, again, they're free. If anybody asks you for money, uh, just hang up on them, and, and please call us and let us know about it. Well, I'm going to hop to a later question, but I think a big to be asked now is, how are you, besides getting a hold of, you know, quaint community public affairs radio hosts and things like that, how are you making sure that Medicare beneficiaries really know this is coming and, and what sorts of scams that they should be prepared to deal with? And I mean, and there's maybe family members that are the sort of scaffold of these vulnerable seniors that need to, they need to get ahead of the scams too. Well, we've got a nationwide uh, publicity campaign going. We're doing a lot of um, outreach to the media and media folks such as yourself. Uh, We're doing paid advertising. We're doing all sorts of, you know, uh, interviews with with uh, journalists from newspapers and TV stations and radio stations across the country. We have a, a spot on uh, nextdoor.com that's running in California now. Uh, we're, we're trying to outreach to people as much as possible. Our partners, we have many uh, nonprofit organizations we work with, including one in, in Orange County called the Health Insurance Counseling and Advocacy Program, or HICAP, H-I-C-A-P, uh, which is a, an excellent organization. If you ever have trouble navigating Medicare, and people often do, uh, you can call up HICAP in Orange County and make an appointment with them. You can do it over the phone or do it in person, and uh, it's staffed by um, uh, all volunteers. Uh, most of them have Medicare themselves, so they're very familiar with the, with the program. They're well-trained, and they usually can answer your questions pretty well. Oh, that's a tremendous resource. Well, tell us, Jack, what if someone loses their new Medicare card? If you lose your your new card, um, again, you'll be able to uh, print out a copy of it. Um, and if you uh, you wind up in your doctor's office and you look in your in your wallet and you find that you haven't you forgot to bring your card or you lost your card, uh, don't worry about it because your doctor will have a secure lookup tool uh, where they can look up your new new number and and use and put that into your records. Um, and uh, just so people know, uh, uh, your your new number uh, will be good until 
excuse me, your old number will be good until December 2019. So until December 2019, you can actually use either your old or your new Medicare card, and both of them will work at your doctor's office. Just to dot the I, the end of December 2019, like the end of the year, or is it December 1, 2019, just in it's case? It's the end of December. Okay. In, in effect, it's the end of 2019. Okay, okay, good. Well, so how does someone print out this new card? Well, it's pretty easy if you have uh, a computer at home or access to a computer. Uh, you, you first need to uh, open yourself an account with MyMedicare.gov, and you can do that by visiting, uh, visiting us online. It's www.MyMedicare.gov.gov, and then you just uh, select a button that says uh, View or Print Your New Medica- Medicare Card, and, and you hit the Print button, and a copy will come out. And uh, you can, you know, if you lose it, you can you can make another copy. Okay. So when you get your Medicare number, will it be the same as your spouse's? No, uh, that was true for many years. Uh, oh. Married couples have the same mer- Medicare number, that. but that's no longer true. Uh, each person with Medicare is going to have their own uh, number that will be unique to them. And uh, that's a change that we think is going to uh, keep your information more secure and uh, help protect your identity. So when you then, uh, do people have to memorize their uh, Medicare number? No, no, you don't have to. And <laughs> that would be kind of difficult, uh, given how long it is and, and its numbers and letters. Um, uh, you'll like be able password. to uh, yeah. look up your Medicare number online. Uh, your doctor will or your, the hospital uh, uh, intake person will. And you can always, if, if uh, you need to look it up, you can always go to your MyMedicare.gov account. And, uh, again, the address to sign up for that is www.MyMedicare.gov. So, Jack, so you've, in preparation, you've given me some, some details about the common fraud schemes. I'd like for you to share with the listeners what people should watch out for with Medicare fraud, specific th- little capers people are pulling off. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's a pretty serious problem. I mean, the Medicare, unfortunately, loses a lot of money every year to fraudsters. And um, uh, if, you know, that's one of the reasons we always warn people to guard your card, protect your number, because if it falls into the wrong person's hands, they can actually bill the government for medical services, potentially a surgery or something very expensive. Um, in terms of what the, the actual frauds look like, um, there's, they take many different forms. Okay. Uh, always be wary of uh, a door-to-door salesperson who uh, wants to give you or sell you Medicare, uh, medical supplies. If somebody shows up on your doorstep claiming to be from Medicare or Medicaid, keep in mind that we don't send representatives to your home. Uh, we, you know, we don't try to sell you products or services uh, door-to-door. Uh, and, you know, just keep in mind, you know, the old saying, there's, there's no free lunch. I mean, if somebody offers you money or uh, a, a gift in exchange for uh, free medical care, don't accept it because you're likely to be uh, dealing with a, with a con artist. So what about, what other things like about uh, certain media advertising? Cause, and and it, I think that media advertising is very, very, uh, it's a murky detail because of how much the insurance companies are mining data from us, uh, you know, in the name of trying to give us better care. All of this is is very difficult to distinguish between. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think that you know, it's it's you know, the approach, um, you know, medical services, the 
same way you approach any kind of consumer purchase. I mean, be, be, you know, be skeptical of the advertising to some extent. You know, a lot of the ads you're going to see on TV or here on the radio don't necessarily have your, your best interests at heart. I mean, I would be especially wary of anybody who tells you that a certain medical item or service isn't usually covered by Medicare, but they, quote, unquote, can, uh, they know how to bill Medicare, so Medicare will pay for it. Uh, and always remember, just you know, don't give your Medicare card or Medicare number to anyone except your doctor or uh, people you, uh, you know should have it. Like your, like a fam- trusted family member. But even that, are are there cases where a family member has fraudulently used that Medicare card number? I, mean, I sure happened. hope not, Claudia. I mean, I've never heard of anything that, oh, is that bad, right? but uh, you never know, right? Well, never seniors never. get abused, and so that that there's financial abuse. So I imagine. Right. But I want to give you a chance to explain how uh, Medicare claims uh, errors are are dealt with so people are vigilant about all this billing coming their way. Sure. I mean, one important thing you can do in terms of of, uh, spotting fraud, Medicare fraud, is make sure you review your Medicare claims for errors and report Ah, anything suspicious to Medicare. Again, the number is 1-800-MEDICARE. Uh, you know, when you get uh, some sort of a, a health care service, record the date on a calendar and save the receipts, uh, save the statements you get from your providers, uh, and that way you can check for any mistakes. And you can compare the dates and services on your calendar with the statements you get from Medicare. Uh, that way you can make sure that you got uh, each of the service li- services listed and that all the details are, are correct. Okay. And is it a possible that the error is just a mistake? It's not deliberate fraud. Yes, I mean absolutely. It's 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 always possible that uh, you know somebody has just made an honest error. You know, if you think uh, that a charge uh, is incorrect and you know the provider, you can just call them up and and talk to them about it. The and provider. The, the provider, right? right. Uh, your your doctor or your pharmacist or somebody, uh, the hospital, and the, the person you talk to may be able to help you understand. Uh, the services or supplies you got, and, and it turns out it's not an error at all. Or maybe they realize that they did make a billing error, and they can correct that for you. Well, I I think we've covered all of what I believe that our elder consumers need to know. One last thing is that there are tips. There's a tips line here for uh, p- reporting the fraud. Yes, and you know the easiest way to do it is the number I, I've, I've mentioned, one eight hundred Medicare. It's one eight hundred six three three four two two seven. You can also call the um, Inspector General at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. That number is one eight hundred HHS TIPS, or I'll give that in numbers as well. It's one eight hundred four four seven eight four. Seven seven. You can also report fraud to the Inspector General online, and that address is oig.hhs.gov. Again, it's oig.hhs.gov. Well, that's all the time we have. Jack Cheevers, thank you for your time today. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Claudia. My guest was Jack Cheevers, and he is the public information officer here for the the Medicare Medicaid Authority for the the Western states, and uh, he's given us a great deal of important information about the Medicare new card and how we can protect our seniors. So that is my wrap today. And next week I'll have on UCI law professor Jack Lerner. 
He's got the fake news thing down and will share it with all of us. Then Carolyn Yarnell, Anuradha, Vikram, and possibly a few artists will be talking about the latest installation at the Orange County Center for Contemporary Art entitled It's Time, an uncensored look at the Time's Up and Me Too movement. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. It's good to be alive.